Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The High Middle Ages. Europe's population is growing rapidly. The Black Death is just a glint in some rat's eye and still a century away. The economy is booming. The Catholic Church is crusading. The feudal system is alive and well. Oh, King, eh? Very nice. How'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. When are we exactly? We're looking down the barrel of 1200. Tremendous, tremendous, carry on. King Richard the Lionheart has just died after being shot in the shoulder, possibly by a vengeful boy child. Man. Richard's younger brother, John, inherits England. He is, by many accounts, a petty, cruel, and hated ruler. In fact, he attempted a rebellion back when Richard was alive and fighting in the Third Crusade. This is actually a key plot point in most Robin Hood movies, by the way. Prince John is the villain who exploits the poor serfs and prompts Robin to steal from the rich and give to the poor. Hannah, I love this. I love a good history lesson, but I just need to check in for a second here. Uh huh. Don't get me wrong, this is a spectacular rabbit hole that we're falling into. But we do need to get a bit of a wiggle on on this founding document series that we've been planning for a month or so. I hear you. Uh, but what if, what if, Nicholas, I told you that there is a founding document all the way back here in the 13th century? A founding document for the United States. The very first founding document. The most foundational And not just for us, not just for the United States. Some would say for the very notion of freedom under law. That's got to be one heck of a piece of paper. It is indeed. So shall we? Back to the Middle Ages, back to one of the pillars of freedom? It seems pretty Civics 101. Good, because this actually happens to be Civics 101. The podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. I'm Nick Cappadice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are kicking off our series on the founding documents of the United States with a charter. A charter written long, long ago by an unpopular king and a band of fed-up barons. Lords and ladies, may I present Magna Carta. The Magna Carta. Actually, no, just Magna Carta. That's what I said, the Magna Carta. You have to forgive me. People in England don't say the Magna Carta. They say Magna Carta. Who's that? That's Derek Taylor. I started out life as a historian. I read history and law at Oxford. I then got lured into journalism, and um, I uh, became an international reporter working for Independent Television News of London, and I did quite a lot of work as well for ABC News in the States. I was a war reporter and uh, reported from all over the world, especially actually in the US. Uh, But now in retirement, I've gone back to my first love, which is history. Back in 2015, Derek did a deep dive into Magna Carta for the 800th anniversary of this document. He traced its influence all over the world and wrote a book called Magna Carta in 20 Places. And what I did there was that I went all around not only uh, the UK, uh, but in France, in the Middle East, and indeed in the USA, uh, to chart what actually happened in the extraordinary history of this amazing document. Before we go any further with the extraordinary history of this amazing document, quick question, Nick. Do you know what Magna Carta is? 
I've heard of Magna Carta before. I've heard it associated with Robin Hood. I know it's from England from a long time ago. But that's kind of it. I don't know what it actually says. To be honest, neither did I. But it turns out that it is widely celebrated in the U.S. I mean, we've exhibited Magna Carta in Washington, D.C., directly across from our own Declaration and Constitution. We currently have a version of it on display at the Library of Congress. Magna Carta, which means Great Charter, by the way, in Latin, has been invoked throughout American history as a symbol of a kind of universal right. I had no idea it was so important. So what does it actually say? It's got to have some powerful language, right? Well, here's the catch. If you actually look at the language of the original document, for example, print it out and study it in school, take it at face value, you'll be hard-pressed to find the basis for democracy in Magna Carta's original words. It's surrounded and always has been surrounded by incredible misunderstandings. It's believed, for instance, that it was the birth of modern democracy, that it was the first constitution, that it gave us equality under the law. All of these, I hate to break it to you, all of these are completely untrue. So are we wrong to care about it? Hannah, did you conceive this entire episode just so you could rewatch Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? <laughs> that was an added perk, also the cartoon version with the fox. Oh, yeah. I won't deny it, but absolutely not. That's not the reason we're doing this episode. Before we can understand how Magna Carta served our democracy, we have to look back at how it was supposed to serve a 13th century monarchy. So let's get back to the Middle Ages. Magna Carta actually started out life uh, in very, very simple terms as, um, as something which was simply a peace agreement. In 1215, King John of England was facing a rebellion by his barons, by the chief aristocrats in the country. And uh, they decided, in fact, to try and work out a peace deal between themselves. To be absolutely honest, neither side really believed in it. They were both playing for time uh, while they could build up their own forces and go back to the traditional way in which, in the Middle Ages, uh, people settled their, uh, their differences, which is that, of course, uh, what they did was that they, they used the crossbow and the sword. What Derek is saying is that Magna Carta was really just a stalling tactic. Remember, King John was not a popular man. Through a combination of high taxes, ill will, and failed military campaigns, the king found himself on the bad side of some of his barons. So the barons say to him, strike a deal with us and we'll lay off. Yeah, well, first they stormed London and gained a bunch of anti-king followers and really freaked John out. And then John asked them to meet him for a little chat. So they picked a neutral territory, a field just outside of London on the banks of the River Thames called Runnymede. And there, in the soft light of summer, they hammer out a peace agreement. If we look at the, the wording of Magna Carta, um, it's full of uh, words which have no meaning to us today whatsoever. Words like immersement, try things, halberjet. What on earth do they mean? They're old feudal terms. It talks about what should happen about fish traps on the River Medway. I feel I should point out that there is nothing about a halberjet or immersements or fishing in the River Medway in the Constitution of the Bill of Rights, as far as I know. Right. Most of Magna Carta is about obscure, highly specific, barren-type concerns, like serfs and castles and shires. But there is something recognizable in this document's 60-odd clauses. 
we do every now and again stumble on one which we think, ah, now that's interesting, and f for one moment our freedom-loving hearts leap. And then uh, historians come in and say, yeah, well, you may think that, but it's actually really not quite like that at all. Can I just read to you what Clause 39 says? And you'll see, you think, well, that's great. It says, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way. Nor will we, that's the king speaking, proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. Wonderful stuff, huh? Yes. Okay, now you've got me on board. This is wonderful stuff, and it sounds like trial by jury. Clause 39 does sound like that, but it isn't that. Not really. The first thing to say is that it begins, no free man shall be seized, etc., etc. Okay, so the first thing is that 50% of the population, women, are completely excluded. The second point is that no free man, actually, in 13th century England, only one man in five was free. The rest of them were agricultural serfs. They were slaves. So it didn't apply to them at all. So this is a document actually doing a big favor for a very small number of privileged men. Derek's doing a pretty good job of turning me against Magna Carta, actually. Yeah, I can kind of get that. And you know what? Magna Carta is not the mother of modern democracy. But some people do call it the midwife. It helped things along with some sage advice. It's establishing the principle that arbitrary punishment is wrong. It's establishing the principle that this kind of thing that dictators do, in other words, that just simply say, take that man out and chop his head off, um, is wrong. There is a process, even though we don't agree with the process. So that establishes that principle. But the second thing is even more important. This is the king, and this is a real shocker for the 13th century, this is the king agreeing to obey the law. Now that's a first. Until this point, kings were autonomous. They were not responsible to anyone except God, only to God. So the idea that the king has to follow rules, whatever those rules are, is an incredible breakthrough. So up until this point, kings could do whatever they wanted. They made the law, and they were above the law. And then, suddenly, the law's above them? Yes, just not this king. Within three months of it being signed, both sides just forgot about it, and uh, they, they went back to the sword and the crossbow. And uh, King John even persuaded the Pope to annul it and to condemn it as being shameful. Shameful that a man who was responsible to God should be uh, made to obey rules set out by mere human beings. So King John places his seal on Magna Carta when he's in this field surrounded by all of these really angry barons. But then he immediately runs to the Pope and he's like, I'm the king, so my power comes from God, right? And the Pope is like, yeah, absolutely. These barons can't tell you what to do. Magna Carta is null and void. And the barons wage war. That's disappointing. And it might have stayed that way. It might have been a document which got banned uh, into the vaults of some dusty old library somewhere of interest only to a few historians if it hadn't been for one thing, which is that within 16 months, King John was dead. Dead of dysentery at age 49. 
Now John's son, Henry, is in charge. He's nine years old. Um, he was actually described as being a pretty little knight, which is not the kind of words that you want to hear used about the person who's leading your, your side. Luckily, the young king was appointed a grown-up person, a council, a knight named William Marshall who wanted to smooth things over with the barons. He reissued Magna Carta. He, he negotiated a peace deal with the barons and said, look, the way it's going to be from now on under this, this young man, Henry III, John's son, aged only nine, is that we're going to follow the rules laid down in Magna Carta. As it turned out, Magna Carta was a super useful negotiating tactic. King John wasn't so into it because it was about putting some checks on the king, at least for the baron's benefit. But for two centuries after King John's death, Magna Carta was trotted out and revised every time a king needed to suppress a rebellion or raise money for a war. It was a king showing good faith and protecting the interest of his barons. In turn, the barons would help out the king. You said they revised Magna Carta. So that 1215 version wasn't the be-all, end-all version? Right. There were actually many, many versions of Magna Carta. The most significant one happened under Edward III in 1354. Remember how Clause 39 sounded pretty good but wasn't quite there? Edward rewrote it to sound like this. No man of whatever estate or condition he may be. What a step forward that is. No man of whatever state or condition he may be. And if we accept for one moment that in the 14th century it was impossible for these people to imagine that women should be included, this is an incredible move towards equality. But something even more important. Whatever condition he may be, he shall not be punished except by, wait for it, due process of law. Due process. So this is 1354. Our Bill of Rights is written in 1791, 400 years. How did due process get from King Edward to James Madison? It basically laid kind of dormant for many centuries. This is William Hubbard. He's a former president of the American Bar Association and a lawyer in Columbia, South Carolina. And then again, in sort of a period of enlightenment, English jurist by the name of spell Coke, pronounced Cook, and Blackstone sort of dusted off Magna Carta at a time when there was a belief that the king had become too powerful and too insensitive to the people. So Cook is this super important judge in the 1500s and 1600s in England. And there comes this point where the king is imprisoning people willy-nilly, kind of acting like the kings of old, and Cook and a handful of others say, hang on. We have come up against this before. We know how to stop the king from this tyrannical behavior. They wrote about Magna Carta. They based their writings and their philosophies and their belief in human rights and, and freedom of, of individuals. Use those words that, you know, though they were ancient words, they, they were still in existence and part of the, the law of England. And so they, they dusted off those words and used them in the context of the time to, again, try to restrict the power of the king. And soon thereafter, the British colonies were being established in, in the United States. I'm beginning to see a bit of a right place at the right time thing with Magna Carta. And wouldn't you know it, 
Sir Edward Cook was Attorney General of England when the Virginia Charter was drawn up in 1606. Now, this is one of many Virginia Charters, but this particular one gave colonists land rights in Virginia. And it gave people born in the colonies the same rights as people born in England. And if Magna Carta applies in England? Exactly. Then it applies in America, too. It's where so much of what we believe is essential started. If you just want to go back and look at what is the foundation? The foundation for these principles are not something that just came out of the air in the late 1700s in the United States. They had been percolating and and expanded and there'd been explications of what those words meant. And then you're simply applying those magic words, those critical words to changes in circumstances. And there are times when circumstances demand that we go back to basics. If you look back at the dawn of Magna Carta, back to Runnymede in the 1200s, the barons were ticked off because King John was, among other things, levying taxes that they considered to be unfair. He was doing what he darn well pleased, and they decided that enough was enough. Okay, this little history lesson is beginning to make a lot more sense. Let's keep it in the episode. Thank you. Because now we're here, right? At the dawn of the United States and a bunch of people who are supposedly British citizens are not being granted the same rights as British citizens. The colonists were asserting that they had the same rights as Englishmen. As American colonists, they still had the same rights as Englishmen. And how did they prove that? They proved that by citing provisions of Magna Carta. Now, at this point in England, Parliament is really more important than Magna Carta. Magna Carta is respected, and it's lodged in English common law. But you're not necessarily going to hear British-born citizens make constant reference to it in their laws. But for Americans, this old, unshakable document is essential to their case. You know, the phrase taxation without representation became a rallying cry of the colonists who, because of the rights conveyed in Magna Carta, believed that the British government had broken its contract. And Magna Carta gave them a basis for rebellion and gave intellectual underpinning to the revolution. Magna Carta was actually at hand when colonists organized their first act of political rebellion. Uh, That was the Stamp Act Congress of 1765. That's Joel Collins, lawyer and law professor at South Carolina Honors College. Here again, citing Magna Carta, they said this violates Clause 12, which uh, guarantees the king will not enact taxes except with the common consent of the realm. Uh, So the idea of taxes without representation, they said, violates Magna Carta. When the First Continental Congress met in fall of 1774 and drafted a Declaration of Rights and Grievances to be issued to Britain, guess what was on the seal of their journal? I'm going to guess it has something to do with Magna Carta, Hannah. It does indeed. The words Magna Carta at the base of a column grasped by 12 hands representing unity. Wait, if it's the colonies, why is it 12 hands and not 13 hands? That's a good question. In 1774, there were only 12 colonies. Delaware was still a part of Pennsylvania until 1776. Delaware! Delaware, man. And speaking of those original 12 colonies, concepts that originated in Magna Carta were in nine of those 12 original state constitutions. You know, that, that men have the right of self-determination, uh, unalienable rights. 
They are rights that uh, uh, that you don't fight for and earn. They they're yours upon your birth. But by the time we get to the Declaration of Independence, you're not seeing Magna Carta explicitly referenced, right? Yeah, true. But as Joel points out, our framers were reading a lot of philosophy and social theory, and they built that into the Declaration and eventually into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They interpreted the principles of documents like Magna Carta for the purposes of American democracy. I think they were very mindful of Magna Carta. I think they were extremely well read. Read the golden passages of Magna Carta, Clause 38. Henceforth no bailiff shall upon his own unsupported accusation put any man to trial without producing credible witnesses to the truth of the accusation. There's your every man. He's being given rights. Clause 39. No free man shall be taken in prison, deceased, outlawed, banished in any way, and we will proceed against or prosecute him only upon the lawful judgment of his peers. There's your jury trial and the law of the land. There's your due process of law applicable to everybody. It kind of doesn't matter that Magna Carta was first written for a select group of people with totally different life experience and morals and prejudice than us. What matters is this fluke of a 1215 stalling tactic somehow stayed alive long enough to inspire an almost divine principle. And that's why it's important that we learn about it. You know, Magna Carta has just had a tremendous explosive impact over time. Just, again, it, was, it was kind of a seed, and that seed has really, you know, I think, developed some offshoots that really might have been very surprising to the barons. This is Susan Herman, president of the American Civil Liberties Union and professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. Magna Carta idea of law of the land was not something that went throughout society. It only went to 15 percent of the people. Now, when the United States Constitution was written, I think, you know, we don't like to think about it this way, but our the framers of our Constitution, our founding fathers, were not that dissimilar from the barons who went to um, King John in 1215. They were all white men who was left out of the people who were writing the Constitution and who was left out of the basic idea of, you know, who could vote and who was a member of the society were women. Uh, people of color, Native Americans, men without property. In Magna Carta, Susan says, you see the seeds of freedom. It is by no means a freedom that applies to all. But the idea itself is so good and feels so right to all humans that it sticks and it evolves and it spreads. So I went this morning because I knew we were going to be talking. I went to the ACLU website and just searched the term Magna Carta, and there were 77 results. When ACLU lawyers write briefs, there are many kinds of briefs in which they reference Magna Carta and those essential principles of no one being above the law. Modern-day lawyers are citing a document from 800 years ago? Magna Carta has been referenced dozens of times in Supreme Court cases over the years. The more one examines the history of the Excessive Fines Clause and its antecedent, the immersements, Excessive Immersements Clause of Magna Carta. My concept of due process, Mr. Justice Black, which I think goes back to the law of the land, the Magna Carta... Uh, uh, there were no courts to which people could seek redress against the Crown at the time of Magna Carta. In fact, the issue was addressed in the very first clause of Magna Carta. There, King John agreed, and this is a quote, the English church shall be free 
end quote, and he accepted the church's, quote, freedom of elections, right ought to be. So when we think of Magna Carta as the midwife of democracy, it's kind of like thinking of the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights as the things that guarantee our equality. Because when they were written, they didn't actually guarantee equality and liberty for everybody. They became that the more that we use them, because the basic principles of freedom are in there. Exactly. Susan says it boils down to fairness. I think what due process means is it really means being fair. Uh, Law of the land due process, it means that, well, another way that I would describe it is to me, a lot of the idea of rights and civil liberties is really about the golden rule. That imagine that you're being charged with something. Somebody says that you've done something that's a crime, that's wrong. And then they just want to lock you up and or punish you somehow. And you would feel that that was very unfair because you might have a defense. You might have something to say about how you don't think you really were wrong and what you were doing. And if you didn't get a chance to defend yourself, you would really feel that that was unfair. Fairness is this thing that we're naturally drawn to. Remember how Derek Taylor talked about our freedom-loving hearts at the beginning of the episode? How we read things into Magna Carta that aren't literally there? That's because we sense this magic bean at the core of Magna Carta. An accidentally, possibly made-up magic bean that ended up being strong enough to inspire a great democratic experiment. That nobody is above the law. Not even Mother England. It sounds like we might be ready for a declaration, Hannah. Maybe even THE declaration. That's next time on Civics 101. One last word here on this remarkable document. If you're planning to read it, I say go for the 1354 version. It is pretty exciting to look at those words or those words in translation and see the first instance of the term due process in Clause 39. Hannah, this may be a dumb thing to ask, but do you really need to read Magna Carta? Well, there really is a lot of stuff in there about knights and the price of corn and living in a forest and... (laughs) fishing on the river Medway. It's very much a document for barons. Uh, The idea and the spirit are what matter most about Magna Carta, right? So do you have to read it to understand the point of it? I say not necessarily. That said, Nick, the rest of the documents in this series, the ones that are written on U.S. soil, You gotta read those. Do you agree? Agreed. We are endeavoring to make them easier to understand and appreciate, but you still, you have to read them. You have to read them before you listen, after you listen, read them, read them, read them. You think I made my point? I think you got it. Great. (laughs) I think it's been made. Point, Point well taken. Civics 101 was produced today by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Ben Henry, Daniela Ali, and Jack Rodolico. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is extra knight of the most ancient and most noble order of divine halberjet. Music in this episode is by Bad Snacks, what a name, Wayne Jones, Jazar, and Blue Dot Sessions. There is a transcript of this episode as well as a bunch of other resources at civics101podcast.org. And while you're there, check out Extra Credit. 
on our website. It's our bi-weekly newsletter that Hannah and I cobble together on a host of fun topics related to our episodes. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.